how can I have spiritual integrity with my sex life, you know? And like, that doesn't have to look like I'm a fucking Puritan. So that's why I mean, I'm curious to ask other people about what their experience is with it, you know? What does their, what does others healing look like? Everybody, this is Rose. And this is Louisa. And you're listening to Sober Sex. I made a promise to myself to stop not listening. What it looks like now is that I make conscious choices around my sexuality. It started with putting down the substances, really, and starting to listen. And the listening to my body has changed. Anthony Crane, activist, stripper, author, teacher spiritual warrior we are delighted to have you on the podcast welcome to sober sex how are you today i am so thrilled to be with you i wish i was there instead of in this terrible country right now i'm actually doing pretty well um even though this country is an international embarrassment at the moment and we our numbers are alarming and terrible and what's going on here is horrendous. Uh, but personally, I'm great. Um, you know, it's been a strange, strange time. Yeah. I think that's some spiritual maturity, right? To be able to like hold both things at once. Yeah. You know, not <laughs> like live in panic or denial, you know? Yeah. It's been like, um, it's been metabolizing collective sadness and also participating in a really energetic uprising. My memoir, Spent, was published here in 2014, it seems like ages ago, and it's coming out in France. Uh, COVID um, has delayed everything under the sun, so it's uh, delayed right now, but I'm going to be writing a foreword uh, that updates the challenges that we're navigating currently politically in this climate and our our vision for the future so um, yeah it's coming out in france and um, that will be fantastic my favorite bookstore is there amazing which one favorite bookstore oh god i'm spacing what is it it's the one where you can go shakespeare and company yes shakespeare and company thank you beautiful awesome i think they have an artist residency there too like they have an apartment for visiting authors oh i know so it I might be interesting to it. apply to <laughs> you can't apply to it you have to just show up with your backpack oh that's so intense <laughs> that makes me so anxious yeah well you can crash in our guest room in the meantime if while you're waiting for your their apartment to open up okay <laughs> <laughs> can you tell us uh, about the um, early ideas and experiences that informed you as a sexual being? Completely. Um, so my earlier life, I would say that um, it was sort of early MILF culture. Everyone was getting a divorce in the 80s. And so our parents yeah. were like dating at 40 and, and becoming really awakened sexually. And so watching your mom date, you know, is a really exciting and strange thing. And I think that having hot babysitters um, really informed my sexuality, going to county fairs. Um, and, you know, also I was raised by MTV. And so um, Madonna completely, probably single-handedly, Madonna with a touch of Prince, I think informed my early sexuality um, because our 
as my parents were were dating at 40 and having their awakening, I had hot babysitters wearing tight jeans and wearing Charlie perfume hmm. and, and wildly sexual. And I watched uh, MTV 24-7. So, you know, ZZ Top videos and Prince videos and just like, you know, Innerwear was outerwear, and Madonna was shocking. Was a shocking and delightful surge to the system. Um, you know, we were like twelve and thirteen, and like buying G strings with bunny with Playboy bunny ears and going to concerts. <laughs> and we were like twelve, you know, thirteen. Oh my god! Like, it was very. There was a lot of like really, really wild sexuality at that time, and it it, it affected me. Yeah. Awesome. I mean, it also sounds like that that might kind of be the one of the first times in like modern history where like women got to be sexually empowered on kind of a a broader scale, you know, and like it got to be scary and powerful and like exciting. And that must have been really awesome to kind of uh, be a part of like that being the information that you were receiving as opposed to this kind of puritanical like housewife. Exactly. Or even like child vibe. 100%. Like we received the transmission from Madonna, or I did, I can say like like 10 or 11 years old, memorizing her entire album and just the bras and the lace and the fucking makeup and the mole and the just writhing around on the ground. I mean, I think that Madonna may have single-handedly walked my entire generation off a cliff of elaborate (laughs) promiscuity and, um, we were alone. Like she was our hot babysitter, you know, cause our parents mm-hmm. were like workaholics doing Coke, drinking and dating in their late thirties, early forties. We were alone. It was fucking fantastic. Am I allowed to say that? <laughs> yeah. Oh, hell yes. Incredible. How did that inform your first sexual experiences and what was that like? Well, um, I think that, you know, she was basically masturbating on television um, and it was, it was hot. Um, and like, even like the born again Christians, I mean, I would, I would walk it way back and say that, like, I went to private Catholic school for seven years, even though we're not Catholic. And there's something deeply ritualistic and spiritual and hot about everything. And like having that, that detachment and that I would call it detached empathy um, is like seeing these rituals sort of as an outsider, which is a great place to be as a writer and a sexual being, um, that it was very kind of hot to me. Like there was a lot of waiting. I had to wait for a special blessing from the priest because I was not Catholic. So I was on my knees waiting for my special blessing. And so longing and learning (laughs) and ritual is a huge part of my sexual experience. And we're talking like eight, nine, 10 years old. And so a lot of my friends who were born again Christian sort of um, in the 80s, early 80s, were just becoming these outrageous sluts. Um, You know, and I think, and I hold Prince and Madonna completely responsible for that. Amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Which is great. It's really great. Yeah, and... And it was, it was really powerful. I mean, there's footage um, 
there's footage of MTV Awards and Madonna getting the award and her like writhing around in lingerie on a bed on a stage and it pans to the audience and jaw, jaws are dropping and pearls are clutched and women are just aghast and like completely re- like just convulsing and and it's just you and it's like oh yeah 100% like we were teenagers and we were just eating it up and memorizing it, lip syncing. I'm from a really small town of like 20, there are probably 25,000 people in my small town. And so our thing was like lip sync contests. Do you remember that? Was that a thing? Um, I, not publicly, but like among myself and my friends, yeah. very into that. <laughs> I thought huge antique theaters in my town and um, we would have lip sync contests and it was just, so elaborate it was just we were completely educated sexually by mtv and like what that looks like you know inhabiting this sexual charisma and this performing sex so it's no secret i mean it's no wonder that i ended up throwing my body in the laps of strangers for the next 25 years as a sex worker you know i think i was i think i was born to be a sex worker and just kind of like um, the the point the points of um you know Malcolm Gladwell point how he talks about how like all of these things sort of come together in a way that sort of makes your fate inevitable in a sense and I think that like in that sense where I was born what culturally was happening were synthesized perfectly to create this really early very pro sex very innovative sexually charged person who became a sex worker a very empowered activist sex worker and writer for 25 years that is so beautiful I think you're the first person that we've talked to that's had kind of such like the sexual spiritual awakening like in Mm. an obvious (laughs) an obvious kind of simultaneous explosion um really cool because it seems like you really took that in like a healthy way and ran with it and like it didn't actually subvert into like weirdness or shame it was just like no this is awesome (laughs) (laughs) well I think that you know I don't think I did feel ashamed I think that um I think there is shame and I think that that is why there's stigma and I think that I like it's sort of like saying well you know I wasn't born with shame but it definitely bled into my energy and it bled into my psyche and that you know it's sort of like saying like well there is racism there is white privilege and I am addressing that and confronting that I have to confront shame and I have to confront stigma um but yeah I did not initially initially I had permission like we had permission to um to perform sex in these wildly exhibitionistic I think feminist ways you know that were like it was the beginning of third wave feminism that was becoming the feminism that we have now um but shame definitely it's like you're swimming in it (laughs) you're swimming in yeah Um, you know it's like it's like oxygen (laughs) (laughs) yeah you have to come up for air and be like oh no oh no man (laughs) like not having it and and it, it becomes a thing to confront it's an ongoing confrontation so how did that kind of evolve throughout your story from this, like, what sounds like quite an intense and, like, exciting gestational period into kind of 
uh, I guess, bottoming out because that's what happened. That's why we get sober. <laughs> and then through your sobriety. Sure. Um, and so, take your time. This isn't supposed to be rushed. Like. Oh, good, good. Um, it's, it's a complicated story, I think. Um, so looking back, you know, um, I, when I was in the sex industry in the very early 90s, in the very beginning, certainly it was, you know, it came directly from, you know, studying black feminist thought and women in the Holocaust and intersectional feminism at Knowles College. And it came directly from post-structural feminist theory and reading Kathy Acker and Jenny Holzer and Barbara Kruger and Diamante Galas and the Gorilla Girls. And it was this definitely queer sexual expression we were daring the world to look at our bodies and we were I was a writer who was also an activist and so when I was a dancer stripper sex worker um I was it was performance and it was feminist performance art but I was also addicted to drugs and I was a terrible stripper I hated it I I didn't, there was some, there was a disconnect because drugs was never like something that I felt great about. It became something that totally eclipsed the joy. And I was also coming out as queer to myself and I was falling in love. And those things while making my body available to men and, and the system of patriarchy and how it works in strip clubs and the extortion and the discrimination and the racism and the demeaning nature of that extortion in the clubs was difficult to really metabolize. And so ultimately I ended up, um, I'll just say that because this is going to be, it's in my book anyway, that, um, I was in love and I was killing myself with meth and I ended up um, taking a knife to my wrist and ending up in a psych ward where I got sober and I took a break from the sex industry, you know, because I was in a place where I was healing myself and becoming sober. And um, my sponsor was also a sex worker and it became clear that like, economic opportunities for young people and for women and for femmes just are not available. And it's, that's patriarchy and capitalism in a nutshell. (laughs) And so um, I ended up back in the sex industry. I made the decision, you know, with my sponsor, like it's time to go back into the strip clubs. Um, And I like to say that I was fucked sober because I was having an affair with this very hot butch woman who was like the rhinestone cowboy of (laughs) crushes. And I was having an affair on my girlfriend who was my drug dealer. And so I was fucked sober and we had a deeply BDSM relationship and she loves it when I talk about this. So I know that it's okay to talk about this, Um, (laughs) but she was like so fun and elaborate. Like it was so elaborate. And she would write messages to me on the sidewalk in chalk um, about mm. kind of the character that I was to play on our next date. Oh my god! And like things were written. But she was inside. a dumb. What's that? She was she was topping. She was a dumb. She was topping. 
she was a, a butch top and a dagger is what we called them. And so she would write in chalk outside my apartment, which by the way, I shared with like four other people. And so they would <laughs> these messages too. And it was like, Lulu chews gum. Lulu is an airline attendant. Lulu wears a button shirt and a mini skirt. And it was like so embarrassing. And she would leave these messages outside of our apartment that I shared with like four other people. And, um, and that's how I was supposed to show up on our date. And she would show up with in full costume, like as my uncle or something. And we would have this full on, she would never break character. Never. That's so awesome. That's so <laughs> like the best way to get sober. Yeah. Oh she would, she was so elaborate. She would enlist her ex, her ex, um, who, um, as a, um, a, um, well, we didn't have Uber. This is 95. As a chauffeur driver who would pick me up from the strip club in a car and take me to her house where we would fuck for hours and I would be covered in bruises and welts. And then I would go back to the strip club. I would like say that I had a headache or something, a migraine, and I would leave. And then I would come back to the strip club and work like the remaining, you know, few hours. And then I would go home to my girlfriend. Like it was really fucked up. But, um, so yeah, I would, part sounds challenging. <laughs> but so it, it's inter- there's a couple of things. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Sorry to interrupt, but I just wanted to kind of comment on the fact that she was like kind of doing like a, a very elaborate humiliation play by like publicly projecting what she was going to do with you. Totally. 100%. <laughs> and somebody who didn't have like shame essentially like about your your sex and sexuality to have that publicly projected as part of the game is kind of incredible it was great yeah it was really amazing bless inspiring <laughs> inspiring yeah it was really elaborate and really fun and so you know when i i got sober i stayed sober and um i got made it back into the sex industry where i belong and I was able to stand there in a, in a new place of being radically present and, and radically supported and in a place where I was self-supporting through my own contributions and the contributions of thousands of supportive clients. <laughs> and it was a really, um, it was a positive and sober experience to be to be a sober stripper. So awesome. I mean, cause it's also kind of to return to this idea of shame. I think there's a lot of, and you're probably incredibly aware of this, but a lot of like kind of projected shame into sex work. And the fact that like you, this idea of like back into the sex industry where I belonged, you know, this, like this beautiful, like, celebration and ownership of that experience kind of leaves no room for anybody anybody else's opinion of it it's so fantastic and I think when you were talking about kind of the discrepancy between your stripping as kind of um, feminist performance art and the kind of social um like challenges I guess surrounding it um so that kind of brings this question of like, what is it then? You know, this idea of like, is it yours because this is what you're putting into it and this is what you're projecting onto it? Or is it society's kind of judgment filled, uh, pejorative, like, you know, like you said, sexist, racist, misogynist, um, 
like entity like where how, how do you kind of uh navigate like what's what because it, it's a you know it's like a double-edged sword i guess i'm not sure if that's the correct <laughs> use of right. the term double-edged sword yeah i mean um well you know i think it's it's com it's complex but let's let's uncomplicate it um we when i got sober i went to the lusty lady where we as a workforce unionized and we became the first successful and when i say successful i don't mean that in a pejorative way i mean that we got a contract and we successfully obtained that contract and kept it for years and so we became SEIU Local 790, the Exotic Dancers Alliance. And that was like, I still had, you know, bandages on my wrist and was getting sober and remaining sober. And and that was like an incredibly shaping uh, experience for me. And um, so that really shaped my uh, sexuality and my experiences moving forward in the sex industry and my relationship with shame because it didn't, it wasn't there. Like it was the one place where as a worker, I felt completely supported and empowered. And because of that, that has made me believe wholeheartedly in change, in transformation and in um, sexual power and, and doesn't allow for the shame to really convince me of its power. Um, And so, you know, Rebecca Solnit uh, is a writer who I saw her recently on a webinar and she was talking about, uh, feminine technologies. And since this is about sex, I just thought it would be interesting to bring up her notion of feminine technology in a way to talk about sex and women's voices and sex worker voices as a performance and as a spontaneous action and an action that also has an erotic charge to it. So like dancers, strippers, uh, I was talking to a stripper last night um, who's one of my, who's my partner in Soldiers of Pole. And we were talking about how we were laughing about how like, yeah, as strippers, like we're like the grubby dishwashers of the sex industry, but we're also like the most glamorous because like dance is spontaneous and pole dancing is spontaneous. And we always have like scraped knees and like a shoulder injury and like a neck injury. And just like, we're walking around with like bandages on it, like knee pads and like it's hardcore, but I'm like, the porn performers, they have this like incredibly choreographed and beautifully careful. It's a carefulness that feels very careful with one another and staged and choreographed and planned. Whereas stripping has and dance has a performative spontaneity and also like an erotic charge that is homoerotic by nature. And um, and so we kind of like have this blue collar uh, fire between us and I think that it really is sparking a lot of our activism Hmm. and so Rebecca Solnit like talking about feminine technology it's like we're unionizing again in California and it's fucking hot (laughs) and it makes sense that is super hot I mean it's also you guys are essentially like rugby players you're like super athletes <laughs> totally but can you see how it's different than like and I'm, I've done all sex work so it's not um I reject all like hierarchy uh language hierarchy oh what a beautiful term yeah I reject it but it's, so it's like I love all horrors and I am one and and all that um however like 
stripping is definitely like the grubbiest rug. It's the rugby of the sex industry for sure. I'm like, we need protection and we need to unionize, you know? Um, Do you and, have like, yeah, insurance? Yeah. Is, there like an insurance? is there like an insurance that's available? that covers you I know like the health system is totally different but do you uh, performers in um, France for example have an in, a special insurance which covers performers does that exist ah oh, we need it to we need that and that's something that we want to negotiate in our contract it's all fucked up here in all the ways we need but even that. to be able to kind of unionize for that is such a powerful statement of like, we are here, we are organized and we are like, I remember you saying that you were affiliated with the Teamsters, which is like fascinating. Well, we, is that, you know, is the case? no, we're not affiliated with the Teamsters. They support us from a distance, but we, we are affiliated with them in the sense that um, we are in agreement about, AB5, which is the legislation that passed in 2018. No, wait a minute. Dynamics passed. The dynamics ruling happened in, I believe, 2018. It's all such a blur. This pandemic stuff is really fucking up my timeline. Anyway, AB5 means that all gig workers are pretty much employees. And so the Teamsters were the driving force behind that legislation. Uh, And... Like the steel workers have given us donations and the Teamsters support us from a distance. Um, but, you know, we're still fighting against a lot of stigma. But we are. A no, understandably. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so cool, though, that like you're demanding to be treated like essential or essentially workers, not necessarily essential workers, but that this is like a fucking profession. Yeah. And we definitely That's need, like, we need workman's comp and we need health insurance. Absolutely. Antonia came to Paris like what, probably nine months ago. Yeah. Like in the autumn, I think it was around your birthday. It was around your sober birthday. Um, April. With your April. Okay. Spring. Fuck man. That's crazy. So over a year ago and we got to hang out and, um, it was a delight. It was wonderful to also meet your partner. Um, and, uh, right after you left, uh, <laughs> I was listening to like t- a decade old episode of the Savage Love Cast. Shout out Dan Savage, big fans. Um, and I recognized the voice on the line because it was you from like over 10 years ago. And you were talking about how, uh, you were in a a relationship where it was causing, like your profession of choice was causing difficulties between you and your then, your then boyfriend, um, and how you were kind of having a, you know, a blossoming career as a creator and a writer. And yet like you were still you know, like kind of unashamedly and passionately in your career as a sex worker and that this was really challenging for your partner. And I, I was just so moved because like we had just seen each other and I recognize your voice, obviously the calls on that show are uh, anonymous, but like to kind of see how like God or whatever we call our higher power has kind of carried you through um, weaving those parts of your life together and like, kind of making a holistic, magical, blossoming thing, you know, that I got to see kind of how far you were carried towards your dreams. 
um, in the decade since that call had been taken place. It, like, I think I was like washing the dishes and like crying. I was like, Anthony, it's Aww. all happening. God is love. God's love is real. Like it was like, a, it was incredible to kind of bear witness to that as a journey. Cause I think we, we vaguely knew each other about 10 years ago, but I mean, very peripherally. Aww, so it was so, so cool. Yeah, it was really beautiful. <laughs> You're so brilliant. Yeah. I remember that podcast. I love Dan Savage. Huge shout out. Huge fan. Um, yes. So I did that podcast. And it's always been a an issue with my previous partners. I think that, um, you know, they, it's like in theory, people that I've been with, have wanted to be cool with it and have defended themselves against, um, have sort of like had trouble metabolizing, you know, loving me and caring for me and the sex work and jealousy and feeling threatened and sex work. And, um, you know, uh, those other partners, um, have always have struggled with it. And in, since the beginning, whether regardless of gender, you know, because as a bisexual, I've had, you know, every gender of lover. And I think the one person, uh, aside from the person that I'm with now, um, who you met, was I was with a trans. You're the best. So impressed. <laughs> What's that? My love, your partner now. I think you guys are such a beautiful team. Oh, Fantastic. Yeah. My love. Um, and he's a trans man and he's, he doesn't have any um, baggage regarding sex work. So he has no previous experience. And that ended up being like incredibly helpful for us. And he's like incredibly intelligent and really, not only is he incredibly intelligent, but it, it's not just a theory. He embodies that intelligence, mm. which is really huge. What does that um, look like? That looks like, for me in particular and for us, that if he ever feels threatened or jealous about my relations with clients, he knows that it is work and that it is a, a performance of sex and, a, and that, that I have boundaries and he trusts my boundaries and he knows that it's work and he actually feels it in his body. Whereas like Mark Marin, when I was with him, was very um, threatened by it and would constantly interrogate me. And um, although he defended me to his fans, you know, his fans were pretty misogynistic and would say really cruel things about me. Like, um, you know, regardless of how she accessorized it, it's still prostitution or whatever. And oh, he ultimately God. like couldn't, couldn't deal. Um and, uh, but the one aside from Jed, um, I have to go into my kitchen because I hear the lawnmower outside and I don't want it to affect us. Um, thank you. So I was with a trans femme sex worker for a couple of years and I was like, oh my God. And she was sober decades. Still is. Why haven't I been doing this for the last 15 years? Hmm. Why haven't I been partnering with other sex workers? Like, this is fucking the answer. Because we understand and because we're each other's safe call. And because we can laugh about it. And because there's just a, a completely 
like heartfelt understanding and safety there. And that was a huge gift. And now Jed is, is wonderful about it too. And yeah, you're right. And that it did take a long time to get there. It sounds like the most emotionally intelligent and mature kind of understanding of a relationship ever, like massive relationship goals to, to have that level of understanding and understanding makes it sound kind of patronizing, but like empathy and acceptance is just, it's so beautiful. Not at all. It is important. Um, I think that emotional intelligence takes a lot of time and strippers particularly are startlingly intelligent. And when I'm talking about intelligence, I also don't mean to sound elitist, but I'm talking about also a spatial intelligence, a graceful intelligence, a, a huge amount of radical empathy kind of intelligence. And I, of course, all sex workers have this, but strippers, you know, it is so spontaneous um, that as in porn performing or even being a hand job whore, uh, I've never been porn done uh, performed as a porn star or a porn performer is the common parlance. Um, huge respect and support and love. But um, I, um, what was I saying? Oh, there's just the level of spontaneity where you have to be nimble and spatially intelligent and be a, be a dancer. <laughs> Yeah, and a dancer and an entertainer and be so intimate with strangers like on a on in the moment. That I think if I weren't sober, I would never be able to do it. I was the most terrible performer when I was using. I was like shaky and scared and um hated myself, you know? So how did you kind of work through that? It's in in I mean, I guess you talked a little bit about it, but this idea of like what changed like you you talked about having a sponsor who was a sex worker that sounds really like a powerful kind of beacon but also this idea of going back into sex work as a sober woman like how what inside you changed that allowed you to do that and in a way that you were able to totally own it and feel totally empowered by it because it sounds like a very conscientious decision I'll tell you exactly what happened I got arrested for um prostitution I was incarcerated um my mother was dead. My father is someone I would never call uh, from jail for a variety of reasons. And I was out of grad school um, and I was a working writer and I was by myself and I was um, doing sex work at large. And um, I was coming home from my home group which is a, what that means, Rose, is it's a, it's a meeting that we um, commit oh, ourselves Rose to. Oh, okay. Rose is in that club. <laughs> I don't know. Don't worry. Yeah. It's some, you know, Sorry, she warned you. And it's like, it's like coming home from church. You know, I was like in a dress and I was wearing, I was in tights and I was wearing a little jacket and I was um, arrested for prostitution and no one knew where I was. And um, I was supposed to get on a flight the next morning. and. Um, I, you know, was in the habit of not telling anyone where I was and what I was doing. I was lying about people, places and things. And when I finally got home, you know, a little over 24 hours later, um, my sponsor said, are you ready to start telling the truth? Because we practice these principles in all of our affairs. 
And I, I was like, yeah, I'll do anything. I can't feel like this anymore. Um, and uh, I started telling the truth and um, sharing from the podium about being a sex worker and being a handjob whore. And regardless of the snickers in the room and the people who turned their backs on me and people who laughed at me, um, I just didn't care because I was free. And this was, I want to say 2010. I kind of, I have like PTSD around the arrest. Um, so it goes real fuzzy for me. Um, but I think it was 2010 or 11. Um, wow. And, that's uh, some like significant time for you at that point also. Yeah. Oh yeah. So um, I. That's so impressive. <laughs> with that? The, just the level of kind of integrity and honesty to self that like allowed you to kind of, uh, not take on other people's shame or judgment is really like, yeah. especially with that length of sober time and mm-hmm. uh, to I'm, so, I'm just like, God damn. Like, that's so awesome. I got to be free because it doesn't matter what anyone else says. Anybody else, they can yell at me. They can stand up. They can push me, yell at me. It doesn't matter what anyone else does. It only matters what I do. And so to stand in my integrity Work, I believe, is an act of service. It's an act of love and service. And so I do believe that in my skin. I go to work to be of love and service. And I have to practice these principles in all of my affairs. And so it's also an act of love and service to tell the truth and to practice these principles and to tell the truth about everything, about who I am, about people, places, and things. And so I get up from the, at the podium all the time and I'm constantly just like, I am a whore. I am a sex worker. I am a professor who is a sex worker. I have been my entire adult life and I am proud. And um, to say that and to be free allows other sex workers to come to me. And they do. (laughs) Many dozens um, feel that they can also come out as sex workers and not feel shame and a lot of people you know use over their shame totally so that's a huge thing that's so fucking beautiful um um and I'm, i'm wondering also on the kind of other side is that you talk about being of love and service to in your industry and so to clients or to regulars or to strangers like what what does that look like and how do you kind of exert that that level of empathy while it with while in kind of self-preservation or while in like how do you find your boundaries around that well it's interesting Louisa right now because I'm actually in this pandemic and this lockdown I've been experiencing a detox of sorts from the high impact work that I do with clients and it's been super interesting, and I, I definitely have felt a longing. I dream about being on stage. I dream about being on the pole. And uh, so it's a strange time, isn't it? Um, totally. <laughs> um, and, a different kind of performing, yes. Yeah, and, like, I'm having some strange feelings about, like, the emotional and physical labor around sex work. Um, and... Uh, you know, and the activism that I'm doing, which um, requires me to keep going back into the club and um, and getting hired. But uh, 
being present, I think, and being being sober and being present is the thing that is that helps me draw the boundaries. And being of love and service to me as a sex worker is all the day, 24-7. It's the men that come to me. I've had beautiful experiences. I've had terrible experiences. Um, the beautiful experiences you know, have to do with them being radically vulnerable and crying in my arms and, you know, telling me stories and coming out to me as, um, with their fetishes and their fantasies. That's been absolutely beautiful. And it's also a lot to take in. Um, I decided this year that I don't, I'm not holding anybody's secrets anymore that I used to be, um, I don't think it's healthy for me to be an emotional pit stop for men. Like I I don't consent anymore to holding client secrets. So I, that is something that I've decided like we're as sick as our secrets. And that means that I'm no longer going to be a container and hold men's secrets. So then how do you communicate that? I'm communicating it right now. (laughs) Awesome. (laughs) No, but to, to, um, to clients or to people that you're working with. Right. Um, I'm not communicating it at the moment because I'm not anywhere where I need to communicate it, but um, yeah, I'm not in the past, right. But uh, in the future, I am going to communicate that, um, that, you know, as a whistleblower, a salter and a union organizer, like, and a sober woman, it's not healthy for me to be a pit stop and a container for, for secrets anymore. Like these voices, our voices need to sing together and make change and create change. And I'm not going to hold anybody's shame anymore. I'm not doing it. I love that. Well, because so, it's also, I think that you, you're talking about a differentiation between like holding somebody's shame and shaming somebody, right? Oh, so yeah. it's like to create yeah. that, the, the love in that kind of releases the, the shame around it, but then they become, you're enabling somebody to become responsible for themselves and you don't have to kind of like, like you say, be a pit stop or a box of like darkness. <laughs> That's so Definitely. cool. Yeah. Um, you know, cause they love to scapegoat sex workers. You know, I have a client that I've had for 27 years and, you know, he struggles with an addiction and always has, and I care for him. And, um, you know, he has told me like, Oh, you're a trigger for me. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Do you know how long I am sober? Like, let's talk about this. Um, but you know, people will do anything to not take responsibility for themselves and sex workers are so vulnerable. We're a vulnerable scapegoat. You know, you can look at the statistics and see we're the most murdered demographic and always have been particularly trans women of color, sex workers. No, I mean, and the fact that you can kind of be an advocate for change in the, in the trenches is so powerful um so i guess then that kind of begs the question also of like you're not only are you an activist but you're also a creator and a writer and like how do you how do those parts of yourself inform each each other um (laughs) yeah i think that um they always have and i'm always holding holding it all you know as women like we have the ability to have a be in a lot of places at once. Um, and I'm constantly sort of spinning a lot of plates. Um, and I think that that has, 
been a necessity my whole life. Um, and particularly also as labor has eroded in this country and opportunities for women are um, limited. And hopefully this is all changing. Um, I'm a writer who does sex work. I'm a writer who does activism. Um, I'm a writer who is in a BDSM relationship with my partner. You know, I'm a, and all of these, and I'm a queer writer, sex worker who does all these things. And, you know, on any given day, one thing is kind of given center stage. Um, I'm not sure if I'm answering your question. I think that they're, they're all together um, and they all yeah. inform one another. Um, I don't have that I mean, I guess luxury of being like compartmentalized. Yeah. Cause it would, I guess, imply shame or like shutting off parts of yourself for survival, which doesn't sound like interests you at all. No, <laughs> that's the thing. Like when I'm um, dancing and performing, like I'm not someone else. Right. I'm so not... there's no kind of persona necessarily. It's all kind of, uh, no pieces that are integrated. I gave that up. Yeah. I don't, pretend I don't pretend to love men and I, I don't pretend to love strangers I I connect on a deep level and I try to get underneath and really like psychically kind of like be there and be present and you know whatever they're capable of it's kind of like <laughs> I guess it's harm reduction sex work like meet them where they are <laughs> and just and and, yeah. I, and I try to be fully present um I don't pretend to be another character, although I understand anonymity and I respect it and I advocate for it if that is what is needed. Um, you know, in my work that I do, I just too much energy, even like I'm a pro dom and I'm really good at it, even though it's the opposite of what I'm actually into. I'm really super good at being a pro dom. And I'm also like, I'm kind of tall and I'm muscular. And so I sort of like fit, I'm like five, seven, I run, I run every day and I have for like 17 years. So like I get cast as a pro dom and I've made so much money being a pro dom because I like have kind of a built-in contemptuousness towards like, <laughs> men. And I'm just like, I just can do it with my eyes closed, like, and on a pogo stick. And I just like, and I'm just like, oh my God, this is so fucking easy. And I'm, so <laughs> and I'm not breaking my back, but I actually enjoy stripping more, but I make so much money being a pro dom because it's just sort of like, I'm bratty and contemporary. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, they want to give you money. <laughs> yeah. But like, I'm not asking. Like, I'm just like, Oh God, your needs are so boring. <laughs> oh man. That's so annoying. Yeah. But then it's real. And I'm just like, Oh my too. God. Oh, that, is, that is real. It's not a show. You're actually in entire contempt. <laughs> but that's wonderful too, because it's like, oh, what? Because I, I um, definitely identify as like feminist submissive. We've talked about it on the podcast. I think we, you and I have talked about it in person. But this idea of like, actually, it's integrated. It's not. You're not a switch. <laughs> it's yeah. just like you feel genuine contempt for male subs. That's hilarious. <laughs> I do. And, it's like, and I love that you came out about that. It was really sweet. And, and my partner was like really impressed also how open and genuine and sincere you were about that preference of yours. And it's beautiful. So I just wanted to say that. Oh, thank you. I mean, it's interesting too, because you talk about being in a, a BDSM relationship and then also um, 
like I'm, I'm not only interested in kind of how you integrate like the like different hats if there are if there is such a thing in terms of um, like creativity and sex work, but like how your sexuality informs you as a creator. Like what what where where is that energy and like how does it kind of push your work? Because I know like for me at least that that's like when I tap into that space, it's so powerful. And like when I kind of discovered it or kind of opened it up, it was like, Oh man, like this is so much rich, powerful truth in this, in this space that like, um, I, I felt a little too vulnerable at first kind of mm. like putting it into my, my work, but, it, but now it's all I can do. It's all sex and death. <laughs> oh, it's all sex and death. It, it always will. It always has been. Yeah, I, mean, I think you're talking about like desire as a life force in our work, maybe, or power and desire. I'm not yeah. sure. Yeah, I mean, if that's how it kind of unfolds for you, I'm curious mm-hmm. as to kind of your your um, embodied experience of that. Yeah. Um, hmm. Interesting. I I will think more about that. I think that you are further along in that thought process than I am. Um, I will say that my clients, when I'm in a pro-dom role of work, um, the most powerful men, and when I say powerful men, I mean like rich and they have a lot of money. They're art collectors. They own 11 buildings. They you know, run giant corporations. They're the ones that are the most submissive and I make them get naked in the car or whatever, and before they enter my door, or they, I make them strip at the bottom of my stairs and crawl up my stairs naked, and I make them like dance for me, and like they're the ones, the most powerful men, are the most submissive, and I would say that I think that goes across the board as well with um, with me as like in my life, um, I'm doing more directing, and I'm definitely powerful and loud and kind of. Um, I mean, Jed always like comments on how like I need to direct <laughs> and I need to like run the shit and like when I'm in that mode. But you know, and it's like we're the ones that at the end of the day need to be spanked. <laughs> yeah, totally. Or just have somebody else like take control exactly <laughs> like, as a relief mechanism. But that's interesting though, because it's I think that that's part of the thing that's interesting for me about BDSM is that it's non-gendered, right? That it's like, it, it can be whoever can be whatever they are. Um, and there can be a lot like it, it doesn't necessarily have to be like, uh, I, because I'm a woman, I am in a serving role. <laughs> like that in exactly. fact is kind of counterintuitive, yeah. but, um, that's, that's awesome. And so, um, do you like, I'm curious as to, um, like how you slide between spaces. Like, do you feel a kind of psychic change happening as you're moving from like pro dom to stripper to at home with Jed to director to writer, or is it just like all the same thing with like different parts poking out? Like I'm, cause I know that I have a, sometimes it can be challenging to like turn off the person who's, craving constantly to be in control and or to step up to that space if I'm like (laughs) just tell me somebody else tell me what to do (laughs) you know um I don't know that's interesting um I think I slide between um I think if there's like a kind of a jarring um shift change it's the shift change between um being 
an in-person sex worker dancer to this online business. Oh yeah, I what does that look like in practice? Actually, weird. It's I'm not a fan. Um, at the same time, you know, I don't like the Zoom thing. I have to teach. I'm going from you know, it's just like all day with the fucking Zoom, 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 Zoom. Like I'm teaching online. I'm dancing online. Ugh. And it's just, it's so um, impersonal and dead. To me, it just feels like dead energy. Um, and that has been the most jarring transition. Um, I'm not doing, like I'm not doing cam. I have nothing against it. Um, but that has been the, the biggest change for me. And, and it's been sad. It's like I'm grieving being in space with bodies and people and dancing. It's like you live with the world in the world as a dancer. I'm a dancer. I'm not a fucking, I don't know. It's just difficult um, to connect and engage in this way. Um, And it's hard. And uh, I totally hear that. Although it's interesting because I feel like I have a lot more like it's, it's come out much more, around anxiety in terms of kind of traveling and stuff. Cause like, I love the performance part, but for me, traveling is a big part of the work I do. And that part, I'm just like, Ooh, like do not miss the travel part, but definitely like you say, like miss being in a room p- filled with people feeling feelings in the present, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's been really hard. Um, it has taught me a lot as a filmmaker though. Um, and so mm. that's the one cool thing about it is when I was doing, cause we're doing a ton of mutual aid fundraising at soldiers of pole. Um, and check it out at socials underscore of underscore poll <laughs> underscore underscore yeah mm-hmm. and you can also just go to soldiersofpole.com or I'm sorry yeah soldiersofpole.com go on our website we just redid our web- website congratulations and, and it has everything <laughs> that you need it has tons of resources beautiful uh, yeah. speaking of soldiers of pole how did that kind of unfold because you said you were in in your first sober sex work job like in, a, in an activist position able to kind of unionize and get paid and like feel, feel really supported and mm-hmm. like it worked out so how did this how did that evolve into this oh um well when i'm talking about the successful union effort that was back in 1996 <laughs> um and awesome. now yeah <laughs> And we're doing it again in California as employees. And uh, there's a ton of activism going on right now nationally. Uh, you can follow all of it. PDX Stripper Strike is really exciting. They are independent contractors, so it looks differently, and they're using contracting language. But there are so many indigenous black people of color-led stripper strikes and sex worker movements particularly the Black Sex Worker Collective is doing their next fundraiser. And we're having a Soldiers of Pole one hour, like variety show um, led by indigenous black people of color on our team. Um, And that's going to be on July 21st between 8 and 9 p.m. That's Pacific Standard Time. Uh, So y'all are nine hours ahead. Um, and yes, so we are, but I mean, this is a, it's a podcast, so it's global. Oh, <laughs> so gotcha. Pacific yeah. standard time. Gotcha. <laughs> and hopefully, I mean, either way we can put this in the kind of Instagram, we can help Sweet. promote because that's like, it's really exciting. Yeah. There's a ton of activism going on right now. And I was going to say like, back to the topic of just to drop deeper, like you were talking about, like, you know, you don't miss traveling, but you miss bodies in the room performing on that level. The thing that has been the celebration of that has been the protests in the street for black lives matter 
it has been so emotional, like the collective consciousness, the anger, the collective rage, the collective joy, and the movement. It really feels like it's possible, again, to change things right now. Um, And that has been kind of the thing that has been restorative. No, totally. I mean, especially... Like in the industry that you are in, this like like you said, like that's the most murdered population of anybody. I mean, that's insane. So, yeah. how can how um, I know you mentioned a bunch, of, and I would love to kind of pick your brain for those after for the show notes. But what's a good way for people to help support um, Black Indigenous people of color who are in the sex industry? Right. So I think that an impulse is for people to just like donate to ACLU or the big places, but I think it's better to donate individually. And we're constantly doing that and reaching out to specific individuals who through our fundraising efforts reach out to us. And, you know, we're small, like we're just like, you know, a handful of people. Um, And so we can't give to everyone who needs help. And so go to soldiers of pole and um, go to Black Sex Workers Collective and donate to Black Lives Matter. These are places that are helping individuals, um, helping indigenous Black people of color and sex workers particularly. Um, and so that's how, that's how to help, is to really um, follow them, you know, listen to them, listen to sex workers, donate to them. Um, and that's, that's pretty much it. Like we just need help, you know, and um, we have more people that need help than money that we have to give them. Yeah. Especially during a time when I'm sure like all strip clubs are closed and you're not doing a lot of face-to-face stuff. That's really challenging. Yeah. Um, And also, I mean, I guess to kind of loop back to the more like sober centric conversation, like, can you tell us a little bit about your sex ideal or like how you want to show up as a sexual or romantic partner? Oh, I loved that question. It was so innocent in a way. I think it's something that's always shifting. Um, I just wrote down like some thoughts last night because I can't seem to go to bed before 1 a.m. during pandemic. It's like I, it's like something in my brain is like, it's summer vacation, like, and it's totally <laughs> not. Um, but just to be a fun, cool girlfriend is like my goal. Isn't that funny? Just like, you know, <laughs> that's like back to the, the hot babysitter thing. <laughs> just to be a fun hot girlfriend and like you know make time and celebrate my love and be love and be supportive and uh you know be available I um you know I think that's my downfall is that I am a workaholic um Mm. and I can really kind of lose time and lose like forget shit I'm just super forgetful (laughs) And uh, so just being a fun, cool girlfriend, you know, of course, being honest and open and upfront and just dealing with things the minute they come up instead of harboring any scorn. What about you? What are you into, Louisa? I loved that question. What are you into? (laughs) Our next next question is supposed to be for you, but I'll answer it. Okay. Um, Like, I don't know. It's been interesting because I realized that, like, I... Um, I'm very excited about kind of 
having it be my, my sex life be pedagogical and like having there being learning and evolution and like growing together. Cause I think mm-hmm. that there's kind of a bullshit, like there's a weird social expectation that like once you're in a relationship, like you're in a relationship status quo. And then like something I love about the kind of universe of kink is that it's like, it's, it's a spider web. It's, it's not kind of a linear growth. It can be like, Oh, you're into this. So we can be into this together. And I'm into this. And maybe we can check out that. Like there's always a place to explore, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, and I also realized that like, I can't force my partner <laughs> to explore anything. So right. some of that will be up to me and like some of my role in the relationship, like even as a submissive is to kind of present ideas, you know, because like ultimately I like to have, um, my partner initiate, but like to take some of the pressure off of that, because this is his first um, relationship with that kind of dynamic. Um, I can kind of <laughs> like throw out breadcrumbs. I'm like, this is a cool idea that we, we could try this. That's awful. Like, Here's a rope tutorial. <laughs> Here's a list of like fun shit that we might want to investigate, you know? So it's been like, kind of a treasure hunt but it's definitely like a challenge I think in a long-term relationship to like figure out how to keep that excitement and present like energy present in that area when you're also like can you can you take the dog out like totally (laughs) (laughs) want to walk the crown (laughs) hopping from the bottom yeah, I mean, <laughs> I wanted to avoid that explicitly. Like, I actually looked it up on Quora. <laughs> like, how do I avoid topping from the bottom before we got together? Because I was aware that this was his first. Oh, that's <laughs> awesome. And it was like, don't be afraid. It was like, give me totally useless information. But it's also like maybe the most beautiful experience of my life to kind of watch this person come into his power and like, accept and appreciate this part of himself you know like I don't think I made him into a dom like I think that that existed and he never allowed himself to explore it so it's like such a kind of actually kind of exactly what you were talking about in terms of like holistically loving ourselves includes this part yeah you know it's not like it's not there's no skeletons in the closet there's no like there's no shame. <laughs> There's just yeah. like, oh, I love this part of you. Like, I'm so happy that you love this part of you too. <laughs> yeah. Also, like, um, one thing that I thought of when you were talking, can you hear that lawnmower outside? Um, not really. Okay, good. Um, Only when you refer to it. <laughs> I have to, I'm trying to, like, hide. Um, one thing that you reminded me of is just that, um, you know, just because a person is in the more dom role in a sexual relationship doesn't mean that they have to do all the labor of thinking of all the ideas and following it through and la la la. Like, um, you know, that, that to help them feel like, no, this is about you getting what you want to. And like, yeah, totally. Like there's like there's an something. interest in you getting what you want here. Like you don't have to do, oh, totally. do all the labor. Wait, now I hear you're putting something in a food processor. What is that? I know. I'm, I'm, I just tried to close all the windows quietly. I'm sorry. Okay, that's cool. Cute. I mean, so I'm, but I'm curious as to kind of what that, what, what, what does turn you on? What are you excited about? Because if you're jot like. I know that I don't listen to a lot of music as a DJ. Like I listen to music when I'm working out so I can feel it in my body. And then most of the other times, like I'm listening to podcasts or books on audiobooks. Like, mm-hmm. 
So I can imagine that there can be a kind of burnout in this area of like sexuality, like embodying sexuality mm-hmm. when you when it's your job. No, so there's how totally do you different things. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, there are two totally different things. Um, they There's the work part of me that is like definitely sexually powerful, but then there's me at home, which is a more relaxed, energetic space. Um but um, yeah, I mean, what turns me on? You mean other than like melted cheese and cat videos? Um, <laughs> other than those things, yeah. <laughs> um, intellectualism. Um, oh, that's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Uh, smarts, intellectualism, um, bossiness, being in charge, um, and yeah, and playing, playing with power, playing with it, lots of play. It's really important. I mean, it's cool, too, because they talk about it in the big book. <laughs> they're like a family that rarely plays together. No, no, no. I'm like, hmm, yeah. I wonder what they're talking about. <laughs> yeah. When I told you that I was with that sex worker for two years who's a trans femme, um, she also taught me um, the power of laughter. And so when we would go, um, we would like fantasize and do like kind of role play. And she's very intelligent and very funny. Like I've never laughed so much while having sex with someone in my life. And I just, and I, and I always, I don't know why it was always so fucking serious. Like why does it have to be so serious all the time? Like we would just laugh. Oh, That's beautiful. Cause I think it took me a while to figure out that, that like it's part, it, it has to be funny. Otherwise it gets too rigid, you know, even like, and I, I don't find like, I'm not talking about like my clown fetish. Like <laughs> I think that I, my, my present partner, when we were first starting to see each other, kept like sending me like, <laughs> like dogs in costumes mm. and photos of dogs in costumes. And I was like, stop it. <laughs> like, I need you to be like super dom man. And he was like, nah. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. I'm, I'm so happy that he was, he rejected that notion. Like, of nope, sexuality. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. yeah. <laughs> so, you know, not that dogs and costumes are funny, but it's important to be able to like embrace the silliness of all of it. Dogs and costumes are funny. Really yeah. <laughs> but I know what you mean, what like the preciousness. Like, it's like, how do you, that's an interesting thing too. I have that in my relationship too. It's like constantly cat pictures and dog pictures and, like silly pet like cutesy 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 like how do you get cutesy to go in a direction that is going to be erotic i don't i don't know if i mean maybe that's a challenge maybe it doesn't need to but it's like to be able to kind of have it both ways like to be able to not necessarily like to i guess occupy different facets of the relationship simultaneously you know like and to know when that's appropriate (laughs) (laughs) discernment's also important (laughs) Yeah. Like, can you not don't do that about... to me when we're playing? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, can you not talk about dogs and costumes while I'm tied up, please? Yes. <laughs> it's like some really fucked up, kind of annoying torture. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's a stupid sadism, if anything. <laughs> um, I mean, and I guess the, the last question we had here was like, if anything, what changed? Actually, no, that's not true. I'm curious as to how did you figure out what turned you on? Because it sounds like, you know, you came from kind of a really liberated place. Like that was the gestation of your, your like sexual identity, but to find out like to, to, to discover one's own sexuality or kind of sexual proclivities. I'm curious as to kind of how that unfolded for you. Um, 
gosh. I mean, my body just responds. Um, I think that a lot of things turn me on and my body responds. And sometimes it's frightening how many things I eroticize. Um, but I think that getting sober and like my lover who, who was there, who fucked me into sobriety per se, um, and was the butch top, like really showed me what turned me on in a big way. And, uh, you know, finding a partner who was just fun and, and open and up for adventure really helped, help me figure out what turned me on, um, and figuring out what doesn't turn me on. You know, it's like, Hmm, I'm really bored. I guess this doesn't turn me on. Like, where do I get bored? Like, where do I tune out? It's like, Oh God. Like when, when does it feel tedious? Um, whereas like what, you know, what makes me stand up and make the hair on my neck stand up and turn me on? Like, I think it just takes time and it takes being present, you know? So on that, I would say that like when I wasn't sober, you know, I couldn't feel myself, you know, and then like being so present in our bodies, I think that sober sex is the best sex because I'm the most radically present. Totally. Although I do think that that can often be maybe not more difficult for women, but definitely like, I think we're socialized to like be okay with being sexually bored. Like that's kind of like the cliche of the universe. Hmm. And so to kind of switch up that script of, of like, like kind of eye rolling while getting pounded is like, right. that that's not, that's no longer acceptable. And like, and, 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 especially because I think that like men too are taught to kind of like accept non-presence. Yeah. You know? And like, that sucks. Both that, both sides of that, that story suck. Yeah. hundred percent. So how do we kind of encourage not that? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that like you are, they probably eroticize the non-presence and maybe women eroticize boredom. And I think that's totally fun as long as it's conscious. Well, that can be beautiful and that can be a fun game, but then it's not really boredom, is it? You know? No, it's not. Yeah. Like, it, but it's interesting though, because I do like, I appreciate the kind of intellectual like navigation that has to go on when you do start to ask these questions of like, what are we doing here? <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, I think escapism so awesome. is great too. Escapism can be very erotic also. Um, you know, being, you know, play piercing. We did a lot of play piercing in the nineties. I think maybe that's having a comeback. Um, but a lot of piercing, a lot of like, you know, like needle play kind of stuff. Yes. Cool. And there's, there's definitely <laughs> a lot of like escape going on there. Um, and that's very erotic as well. Yeah, I think any kind of heavy pain stuff. But although I think it is also like, and maybe, you know, this is kind of tangential and, and we will be winding down shortly, but this um, this idea of like real presence in that space is absolutely required because if you're using it as a drug, then that puts everybody in, in danger. Oh, for sure. Yeah, definitely. You know, I think it's the like explicit presence is required to be aware, especially bottoming to know about one's own needs and also to be kind of present and aware of your partner's needs because like 
it, it that that's something that like I, I feel like um like top vulnerability dog vulnerability isn't something that is oft discussed and it's important to kind of create like it's important to hold space for that also definitely you know and if, if it's just like checking out just like if it's if it's pain for the sake of pain so I don't have to like be on this plane <laughs> then yeah. maybe that's not really respectful and uh, and uh, considerate of my partner right right um, and consuming people uh, like to feed some sort of addiction is definitely something that has come up, you know, in my, in my psyche and in my work. Um, Surely. Like the addictive nature of kind of dancing and the money and the performance and being sexually powerful is an interesting thing to think about. Although like I have spoken to a, a, a neuroscientist PhD who studies sex addiction and um, she's like, mm, it's not really a thing. But I mean, <laughs> sex addiction is not a thing. Uh huh. Yeah, this is the, also the Dan Savage model. But I, I think, you know, that any behavior or any like it might not be neurochemically the same as like coke or meth or dope, you know, mm-hmm. whatever. Mm-hmm. But the same kind of like, am I using this behavior to check out of my life, and or am I powerless over it? Is it unmanageable? Is it making the rest of my life unmanageable? Oh, for sure. You know? Yeah. Like for oh, yeah. sure, that sex can definitely be that. Definitely. Like, is it eclipsing my whole life? Am I like avoiding like my responsibilities? Yeah, definitely. And also, I mean, that that kind of is an interesting Alanonic question, maybe for you as a sex worker. Like, is are, are you responsible when when you feel like somebody else is doing that with you? That's interesting. Um, yeah, um, it's tricky because is it any of your business? It is. It is my business um, because I'm participating in it. So, but I'm also showing up for work. So if they come to the club, I've had this like a lot in my life. And if they're coming to the club on my shift because they're addicted to me, like that is their problem. I'm not, you know, meeting them outside, going to their house, stealing their, or like, you know, fucking up their marriage by making myself available and, and like, um, I'm not like blurring the boundaries. So I am definitely aware of my boundaries within that, but they have to take responsibility. Like if they're showing up to my work every Thursday at one to see me and they're addicted to me, like that's their responsibility. And it's my responsibility to, to like erect those parameters and maintain them. If I take advantage, so it's not kind of feed into their addiction. Yeah, like if I were to like give them my number and like meet them outside and like I knew they were married and like I was like taking advantage of their weakness, I would see that as sadistic and and terrible. Like I, I would not morally be able to participate in that. But that's powerful though that you can have that kind of boundary and and have no qualms about it because like I recently discovered that there was like. There was, um, I don't know if I want to get into this, uh, just like the, the need to like respond to somebody's text, oh, <laughs> for uh-huh. instance, uh-huh. it's like, especially if I'm not interested, it doesn't have really anything to do with my life or my goals or, or like the only thing it would be doing was like pleasing this person. Mm. And I'm like, wait, but I still feel the kind of anxiety and pressure around it. Like, do oh, yeah. you get that? Or are you like, nah, <laughs> 
Oh yeah. Well that, that I think has everything to, has nothing to do with sex work and everything to do with female socialized because we're trained from birth to please men. Yeah. And to act. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's it. Yes, men. Yeah, fuck that. Fuck politeness. Fuck politeness, indeed. What a beautiful note to end on. I love that. <laughs> I love that for us. Um, is there anything else that you want to plug or replug or or um, shout out before we sign off? Because you're such a joy, Antonia. I'm just so happy that we covered it. I think awesome. you're so generous. You're so beautiful. You're so wonderful. You're such a creative powerhouse. I love you so much. Thank you, Julie. You. I love you so much. And Rose also loves you. She's texting me that you are literally a dream person. I'm so sorry about her uh, audio stuff. Like every time she was like, oh, and then I want to say, and then it would drop out. <laughs> oh, I know. So, well, that means we'll have to have you back. Awesome. <laughs> for Anthony Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. It's nothing but absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for Thank giving you. us your time and energy.